You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 447, Heroes and Demons. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek, hoping to find the morals, meanings, and messages contained therein and see if they withstand the test of time, epic poem stature notwithstanding. This week, Heroes and Demons, the one where patience, bravery, and heroism are tested at every turn. And that's on the part of the viewer. Ooh, boom! We will get back to Heroes and Demons in a moment, just right after Norman tells you how to stay in touch with us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, with our bellies full of elk and mead, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. All right, Heroes and Demons was written by Naren Shankar. Think way back to season four of TNG. An aspiring writer had sent a spec script to the show, and it got rejected. But... Jerry Taylor liked the writing style enough that she invited this very green writer to come on board as an intern. Naren took the job, and by season five, he was sharing an on-screen credit along with Ronald D. Moore for The First Duty, and more episodes followed. Naren even worked as a science editor and script consultant and stayed with TNG until the end. He also penned a couple of episodes at DS9, but this is his only Voyager credit. After Trek, Naren went on to work for J.J. Abrams' Almost Human and Sci-Fi Channel slash Amazon's The Expanse. This was directed by Les Landau. Hasn't been too long since we saw Les. He directed Time and Again and Prime Factors, and here he is wrapping up his Season 1 contributions to Voyager. He will be back for more, though. All right. If you were not paying attention during 8th grade English class, let's do a quick dive into Beowulf, the late 10th century Old English epic poem. The story takes place in the 6th century, meaning it was likely a much older story handed down through oral tradition until finally being written down until, you know, the late 10th, early 11th century. That's the version that we most commonly refer to today. The characters and places are very likely malleable blends of myth, total fiction, and a little sprinkling of history here and there. The setting is southern Scandinavia, the people are the Danes, and the problem is that King Hrothgar and his court are besieged by the monster Grendel, and it's up to the hero Beowulf to get rid of him, and well, you'll just have to read the rest on your own. Creative license was taken by Naren, and the other writers and producers who had a hand on this script. 
in many ways. Uh, just as Beowulf evolved over centuries, lifting from various sources, so did Naren Shankar in this one. For example, the king in Beowulf does have a daughter, but she's not named and doesn't really have a role. Here they wanted to create someone who could be a possible romantic foil to try the doctor's programming. Now, you may have heard of the flying spaghetti monster in your life. Maybe, maybe not. But in this episode, the CG effect used to portray the alien life form, quote, you know, Grendel, was created by Ronald B. Moore, who affectionately called him the fettuccine monster. All right, let's meet our guest cast. Our three featured guest players this week are all on the holodeck, living their best lives on the story of Beowulf. There's King Hrothgar, played by Michael Keenan. You have most certainly seen him before. Think back to those heady days of DS9 when we met the group of genetically altered visitors who were under Dr. Bashir's care, starting in statistical probabilities. Michael played Patrick from that group. Uh, before that, though, we caught him on the Scottish theme park planet in Sub Rosa, where he played Maturin, the governor. There's a lot more to his career than Star Trek, though. He got his start on TV in the early 70s, and while he was bouncing around most of his career in guest appearances, everything from Dallas to Remington Steel to a recurring gig on Picket Fences, he was also working a lot on stage. Unferth. The king's somewhat defensive courtier is played by Christopher Neem. Now, he has shown up in so many sci-fi and fantasy projects, it's hard to keep track. He turns up on Sliders, the British cult classic Blake 7. He's a voice in a couple of Star Wars video games, and he was even in Timothy Dalton's second outing as Bond in License to Kill. His big break, though, came in the Hammer Horror classic, uh, all right, classic might be using the term loosely, Dracula A.D. 1972, in which he was Dracula's valet and got to spend some quality time on screen with the great Christopher Lee himself. That, by the way, is preceded by the considerably less auspicious 1971 Hammer film, Lust for a Vampire. This is Christopher's first Trek appearance, and he will be back for two more on Enterprise. Finally, Freya is played by Marjorie Monaghan, definitely not her first or last rodeo in TV science fiction. You've seen Marjorie early in her career on Quantum Leap, and then if you blinked, you might have missed her as a series regular on Space Rangers. Uh, they only had six episodes total, only one of which aired in the U.S., Later on, though, Marjorie had a recurring role on Babylon 5, and then she appears in another Gene Roddenberry concept, Andromeda, in a two-parter episode. And while her on-screen credits largely stop in the mid-2000s, it's an interesting footnote to know that she was in the running to play to Paul on Enterprise. I forget. Is Heroes and Demons the one where Tom Hanks loses his grip on reality? I brought my 20-sided dice just in case. Prologue. Down in engineering, Lieutenant Torres is beaming aboard samples of unusual photonic matter from a protostar, much to the interest of Captain Janeway. 
It's something they might be able to use to boost overall ship efficiency. Uh, but one of the samples doesn't materialize as expected due to a problem with the containment beam. Uh, they run the transporter again, grab that extra sample, and Janeway wants that research started right away. She calls up Harry Kim, only he's not around anywhere. The computer reports back that he's not even on the ship. On the bridge, Tuvok reports that there are no unauthorized transports, and Kim's last known whereabouts are the holodeck. He and Chakotay go to check it out. A program is definitely running, one that they can't shut down. They enter to find a lush nighttime forest, and still no sign of Ensign Kim. Act 1. The forest is one of the settings from Beowulf, that ancient epic poem, and this holodeck program isn't responding to normal commands. An armor-clad woman emerges from the woods, suspicious of these new characters, at which point Tuvok figures the safety protocols are also probably not working, and they had better play along. The woman is Freya, daughter of King Hrothgar, and she wants to know if these two guys are Beowulf's kinsmen. Uh, yeah, definitely. Which is great cover, only in this version of the story, Beowulf, Harry Kim in the hero role, is dead. Freya takes these two strangers to meet her father, and heck yeah, he's got quite the mead hall going on, but he's shaken by the fate of Beowulf, defeated by Grendel, just like his own warriors were. The strangers, Chakotay and Tuvok, don't exactly win over Hrothgar's right hand, Unferth, but the king lets them test their mettle. They can stand sentry and face Grendel themselves, if that's really what they want to do. When the hall is cleared, the two report back to Janeway what they've learned, that the holodeck is on the fritz, and it may have killed Harry. They'll scan everything and send their findings back to the bridge. If they can shut the system down, they would at least be able to determine if Kim's body is in there somewhere. As the scans come in, Janeway and Bolana are able to come up with a possible culprit, the photonic matter that they were beaming on board. Some of it leaked out from the transporter when the confinement beam went wonky. It's been messing with other ship systems, too. It appears that the normal holodeck procedure, converting energy into matter for fun and games, has operated in reverse, converting Harry Kim into energy, or at least that's what Tuvok proposes. He and Chakotay will be able to find out soon enough, since Grendel is starting to push through the door, all light beams and otherworldly shrieking. The two scan the appearance of the beast, and then, before anyone can beam them out safely, they are gone. Act 2. That photonic leak did indeed mess up the holodeck systems, so why not fight holography with holography? The EMH doctor is as good a choice as anyone to interact, he can't be hurt after all, with the Beowulf simulation and determine if the patterns of Kim, Tuvok, and Chakotay are somehow still in there and accessible. He'll download all he needs to know about Beowulf, but Cass notices that he's a bit nervous about this mission that the captain has assigned. It is, after all, far outside his usual programming. Once in the simulation, and seeing a forest for the very first time, the doctor finds the tricorder beamed in before him, and he is quickly greeted, as were the others, by Freya. He says he's looking for Grendel, which of course to her means he's a warrior, and when asked for a name, he says he's Dr. Schweitzer. Freya introduces Schweitzer to the court, but at this point, 
they've all had enough of the failed heroes who have come before him. Unferth even challenges him with his sword, but when it passes right through the EMH with no wound whatsoever, people think they have a new champion at hand. Act 3. Over dinner and stories, the doctor, Schweitzer, has ingratiated himself to King Hrothgar, who is hopeful that this is the one who will rid them of Grendel. Unferth is suspicious. Later at night, Freya has a more personal conversation with Schweitzer. She's concerned that her people don't seem to truly grasp the situation at hand. They don't speak of it. They keep dying. And she feels alone in her concerns, a feeling the doctor can relate to. She's impressed by his honesty and his courage, and she even offers to uh, keep him warm tonight. But that consideration will have to wait, because just as she leaves, the screeching of Grendel alerts the doctor. He starts to scan with his tricorder and reports back to the bridge. It's a huge mass of photonic energy, and what looks like a tentacle of some sort reaches out toward him and wraps itself around his right arm, when the doctor quickly calls to be transferred out of there and back to sickbay, Tom Paris has him, but minus his arm. Act 4. Don't worry, he's just a hologram. The doc has a new arm. But his temporary sacrifice was good for the data-gathering mission at hand. Sorry, pun intended. Grendel, the beast of photonic energy, has some synaptic patterns floating around in it. Torres and Perez then go take a look at the other sample they still have in engineering and detect a similar thing there, a pattern that indicates some kind of neural net. But the more they study it, the sample breaks free of the container and flies right into one of the ship's consoles, bouncing from one place to another all over Voyager, even avoiding the force fields Torres and Kim try to use to capture it. They and Janeway from the bridge have the same realization— these photonic energy masses are, indeed, life forms of some kind. As the loose form makes its way closer to the outer hull, Janeway decides to let it go, and on the view screen they see it fly away, vanishing into a pinpoint of light. Act 5. Whatever it escaped to, a ship of some kind, a home, it was with intent and it was a photonic lattice that Voyager had a chance to scan. What it revealed was three biological life signs, possibly their missing crew members. Janeway, Torres, and the Doctor agree that they need to reach out to Grendel on the holodeck with the other photonic sample they've captured as a show of goodwill. If they can show that they understand that they wrongly captured one of its life forms, then maybe they can get their crew back. Into the holodeck again, where the doctor, Schweitzer, is happily greeted by Freya again, and not so happily by Unferth. He challenges the doctor, but Freya steps up to defend him, and dies in the process by Unferth's dagger. While she lays dying in the doctor's arms, Unferth steals a container with the photonic sample and heads back to the mead hall, then concocts a story about how Schweitzer killed Freya, but the king doesn't buy it. The doctor, mustering up all the bravery he has, and very much stinging from the loss of Freya, threatens Unferth at the end of his sword, but then reminds him that he has taken an oath to do no harm. With that, he takes the container and calls for Grendel, and then makes an exchange. He releases the photonic alien sample and asks for the missing Voyager crew back. 
The photonic lattice appears in space again, and shortly after, the three missing crewmen are rematerialized on the holodeck, Harry Kim having no idea where he was. Then the photonic beings just disappear. In conversation with Captain Janeway, the doctor reflects on his own experience, thinking that maybe this first contact didn't go so well. But she points out to him that they made contact, communicated, and resolved the incident peacefully. She's going to put in a commendation for him in the ship's logs, and she'd like to do it by name. But the doctor isn't so sure he wants to keep the name he picked, since the last time he heard it was when Freya died in his arms. Regardless, he has likely not seen his last away mission. The end. Only a tale like that could have been told by one named Champion. It wasn't worthy of a champion, though. I, I don't know. I, I liked it. You got through it. I tried. <laughs> I tried. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Jumping into the observations as we do. Yep. I loved... This is the very beginning before we get into any of this stuff. I really liked those photonic generator containment devices. They looked like... Let's take overhead yeah. projectors and spice them up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> They're kind of like that. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. right. They are kind of like that. That That's the prop. It, it's harder to get... I, I don't know why, but it, it's harder to get detailed prop information kind of the later you go in uh, in Trek's, you know, the Berman era stuff. I would like to think that that exists from modern props right alongside on the same shelf as the most important prop in the universe. Mm-hmm. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know. Um, so maybe they exist still somewhere. So what do we think of Captain Janeway's experimental do? Because I've always kind of like wondered about like barbers or hairstylists in the, you know, 23rd, 24th century. You know, we have Mr. Mott mm-hmm. that cut all of Jean-Luc's one hair. Yeah. Right? Mott, Mott the barber. Exactly. Yeah. But it's kind of mm-hmm. like I imagine going and getting a new fresh look, like sitting in a modern version, their modern version of a Floby. Just yeah. sit down or maybe let like one of those barber chair bulbous hair things that used to be like the dryer. Just You just put in your credit and say, hey, you know what? I want a flat top today or I want long hair today or I want heavy metal hair yeah. today. Poof. Yeah. There goes your applicator credit. It, exactly. When we get to the 24th century, uh, I would hope that, that it would come before then. That's the thing. It's like you wake up in the morning, you stick your head in a thing, you, you push a button, boom. You know, it's very like George Jetson getting dressed in the morning. Just the mm-hmm. thing comes down from the ceiling and then and then it works. I, this is one of those weird production things, though. And, and I feel like it is so... Uh, at this time, in particular, specific to the women in lead roles on shows. And you just have to wonder, like, there is so much time and attention spent on the hair of the lead characters and the lead women in particular. Of course, famously, you know, Gene didn't want a bald captain when they got around to uh, Next Gen. And there's that famous footage of uh, Sir Patrick wearing a piece, mm. <laughs> which which doesn't look bad on him. But, but uh, you can't picture him any other way other than looking the way he naturally looks, you know. But it's just one of those things that's so strange in TV production where – of all the details that get attention, and particularly from higher-ups in TV production, you know that there's like th- there are memos back and forth between producers. Like, we have to change the hair. We have to fix this. We have to fix that. And, and you know, like, 
R- really? <laughs> it's, I think uh, Kate Mulgrew has looked great and commanding, and I totally buy the character regardless right. of the hairstyle. True. But this is one of those things that suddenly becomes much more important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Got to point out, you know, there's a line early on that uh, Freya, when she encounters uh, Chakotay and Tuvok, uh, you know, are, are you Beowulf's kinsmen? Tuvok wisely, yes, we are Beowulf's kinsmen. <laughs> it's analogous to the response you should give if somebody asks if you're a god. You say yes. yes. You say yes. <laughs> yeah. I love Marjorie. I think uh, her, yeah. her look as Freya looks good. Uh, the costuming. Yeah. Your mileage may vary when it comes to historical <laughs> accuracy, but we are in the holodeck. You know? Yeah. But, yeah. So Milos Forman, who directed Amadeus, famously chose for his actors not to try and pull off an accent because he felt that they were fighting the performance for the accent. That was a good choice. Yeah. Here, I think the choice for Marjorie to try the accent also affected her performance. Bottom line, when you do that, you get Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yes. All of you grown out there too. You know what I'm talking about. So like, I I, I wish that they were just like, no, you know what? Forget it. Just don't do the accents at all. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Give us a performance. I, I really like Marjorie's voice anyway. Just mm-hmm. the sound of her voice is really nice. And then when you layer an accent, but then it's inconsistent within the world that they're in, it, it it's jarring. Um, it, by the same problem, you have like, you know, anytime you have uh, an American or an English language, say, World War II film, all the Nazis have British accents. Mm. And it's like, well, you, you know, so this weird, weird choices like that happen all the time. And it's going to like, no, if, if they just have their own normal, natural accent, I think we as an audience can buy right. it. Right. Exactly. You know, <laughs> it, it was interesting. You no, know, Janeway's surprise at hearing that Harry Kim may have been killed in the holodeck. Didn't she read any reports from the Enterprise D? Like, <laughs> like literally those safety protocols break down a few times a month. Like, it, it is a death trap at a certain point. Yeah, there should be a sign, like Federation sign, like, you know, enter at own risk. You know, that yeah, kind of right. Thing. Yeah. Oh, by the way, like in the L cars, I guess, outer display outside of the holodeck when Tuvok was trying to figure mm-hmm. out what happened, did you see the 007 that was on the L cars <gasps> display? No. Oh, man, I didn't notice that. Yeah, so on the. I, uh- that's cool. When he was facing yeah. the, the the panel on his, the mm-hmm. upper right hand side, where his right hand was, it says 007 mm-hmm. in kind of like a lime greenish uh, color. So check that out, folks. That was kind How of. How did fun. I miss yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. So not a forty-seven this time. We got a 007. 007. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also from the same file that Doctor Bashir got his holodeck programs. You know exactly. Now uh, it, it's funny if that photonic energy that messed up the holodeck also leaked out into other ship systems, like the replicators. What the hell was coming out of the replicators? <laughs> like, like this is gets glossed over in the story. She's like, oh yeah, it's messing with everything, messing with the replicators. Um, Hot banana? Anyone? Why is Neelix all of a sudden serving spaghetti all the time? (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I I do like uh, the doctor, you know, computer, access Beowulf and all annotations and cultural references. And then he sits down at his desk to read it on a monitor again. I know. I know. We we got an email about that, you know, but actually, like, he's still... He is part of the computer, right? But, 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 I, like that is the the dream idea, though. If you can just say, like, give me all the knowledge about this thing, 
Like that's that's pretty cool. There was kind of a matrixy moment before the matrix became the matrix in this episode. So I'm going to talk about that later mm. uh, in discussion. Okay. The the weird thing was that in in the infirmary you had Janeway, Paris, and Torres all standing atop the doctor, which made him look smaller. Kind of like when his mm. when his photonic cameras were like malfunctioning and like what parallax would have made him like squattier and shorter. Yep, right. It almost felt like they were purposefully making him look lesser than. Mm. And I'm not sure if that was a conscious choice or a subconscious choice, but it just came off like, here is the hero of the story now. You are just not nearly as tall or as important as the three background characters to your foreground character, which I thought was a strange choice. Uh, yeah. It, well, it could have been on purpose. Could be. It could have been a happy accident, you know. That, that's a, a weird accident, you know. Mm-hmm. I do love, like, uh, we always enjoyed pointing out the great one-liners that, say, a wharf would get in DS9 when those moments happen. Uh, it, it, it's no secret here that clearly this early on in the series they know that they've got something special with Robert Picardo as the doctor. And when he starts to get those one-liners, even when he can just kind of throw them away and, and treat them with sincerity and earnestness, I love Freya saying, your people must value you greatly. And he says, you would think so. Yeah, more on that later. <laughs> Great line. Yeah. Great line. For sure. Now, uh, when the doctor chose Schweitzer for his name, of course, of course, I, I my mind immediately went to that waterfall at Disneyland on the Jungle Cruise, named after the famous doctor, Albert Falls. <laughs> you know, here's uh, um, an interesting thing. And I don't know if it's, you know, if if every culture has this ritual, but creating mm-hmm. hallucinogenic tea before you're going into battle, is that oh. why people were brave? Because you're literally, you know, you're running into battle, fighting people that are probably bigger than you, fiercer than you, et cetera, et cetera. But... Just higher than a kite. If you drink enough of this herbal tea, <laughs> you too will be you, you will be recorded in the yeah. annals of history. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. That's that's interesting. because you are psychotic at the time. <laughs> Just saying. By the way, I uh, I made a uh, Disneyland reference. Now I have to make a food reference, yeah. also tied to Disneyland. I love the doctor sitting there at the big table in the mead hall. I could only think of the giant roasted turkey legs at Disneyland while they all sit around eating those giant cuts of elk. Uh, fun little, I, this didn't make it the trivia, but fun little thing. That actually was a giant leg of lamb that um, uh, that Bob was eating. And he said later on, he's like, it was delicious, but <laughs> it was also very salty and, and lamb can get kind of greasy and lo- all things that I love. And, it, it, and apparently they shot that scene like first thing in the morning. <laughs> So he he comes in like this is great, but okay, how many takes are we gonna have to do at you know whatever it is eight a.m. chowing down on this uh, leg of lamb? Well, perhaps he should have listened to Dishin. He could have gotten some vegan yeah. lamb. For yeah, him. see, there you go. Yeah, get him, get him an alternative made with the yeah. real V. All right. So uh, <laughs> here's an interesting thing. So I always look uh, specifically at weapons and armor when it when they show up in episodes. There's sure. a scene where Unferth, uh, he duels the Doctor, and after a few clashing of swords, of blades, you can actually see mm-hmm. the bend in Unferth's blade as he lowers his weapon. Typically, mm-hmm. uh, stunt, stunt blades are made out of aluminum, which is uh-huh. very soft. So yeah. uh, if they don't reset the blade, the blade will have what's called a set in the blade where it's just bent. Oh, really? Right. So, okay. huh. yeah, and uh, the whole thing about the Doctor dropping the blade, guys... Historically, swords, they didn't weigh more than three pounds. Right. 
<laughs> really? 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 Wait, it, it, uh, even if they were that big and made out of steel, mm-hmm. they don't uh, really? really? They're very thin. Okay. You know, yeah. um, most of the weight is in the pommel, but they're very, very thin because you have to swing those things 10, 15, 20 minutes on end. You know, so thinking, think yeah. about swinging a 20-pound dumbbell for 20 minutes. Yeah. You know? Okay. Yeah. So you kind of put that yeah. in perspective. Um, speaking of perspective, fire is mm-hmm. not the only heat, Lord Schweitzer. You know where I sleep. What? Whoa. Hey, that is – she is – Coming in there strong, and I uh, gotta say, bravo, bravo, Freya. All I can say is yeah. that Marjorie is a trooper in this episode and delivers her lines like a pro, even when they're written like that. Just saying. I, but you know what? Here's the thing: like it, it's <laughs> it's an interesting <laughs> bit of dialogue. But what I liked about the way that scene was shot, she's almost delivering it as she's in the background walking off, oh, yeah. and it, it's just it. it it definitely keeps reinforcing the strength that she has, you know. And I like yeah. that um, that the doctor is kind of like his his whole thrust towards the end of the episode. There's a little bit of revenge, there's anger, but I do like. Yeah, also, no pun intended. Oh, yeah. oh no, jeez, <laughs> uh, this just writes itself, yeah. folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that when he went to Unferth, he had the blade in his hand, he had the weapon in his hand, he had the you know the the torch in his hand, and he said, "The only reason you won't die today is because I've taken an oath not to do harm." I love that. Like, yes. even in the holodeck, even kind of like in the re- historical recreation of this story, which he knows he's not going to kill anyone. Right. He still right. chooses to do what, you know, his his programming or his understanding uh, is capable of um, moderating his behavior. So I thought that was really smart. Didn't the giant space amoeba nebula creatures teach these people not to beam glowy stuff aboard the ship a few weeks ago? We'll get right back to Heroes and Demons in a moment. But first, a word of thanks to all of you, our supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash mission log. You know, Norman, we get to talk about it every now and then here on the show. And um, truly, sincerely, we have built a community and I'm so grateful and thankful to the people who have joined us there because it's one of the most engaging and positive conversations that we get to have about our fandoms, not just Star Trek, uh, but all of our fandoms online. You know, the great thing about the Patreon community and watching it grow is we haven't even hit our one year anniversary yet for our Patreon and Discord community. Mm-hmm. And it has grown so much and so many people have gotten involved, uh, people that are sharing their interests with us, people that are sharing their deep personality uh, mm-hmm. once and, and, and likes and their fandoms with us, especially with food. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. That the, Epicurean, the Epicureanism <laughs> channel on Discord literally is worth the price it's, of admission itself. It, it, it's thriving, yeah. And then yeah. what I love also is that there's a lot of spillover into real life. The people who have met there who get to hang out in person, and we make plans about conventions there. So uh, there's really so much happening there. It's hard to overstate, well, how much I love it and how cool it is that we think it's there. And that's just one part of our Patreon package. I mean, all the tiers uh, online, if you visit patreon.com slash mission log, Everybody gets access to our early and unedited recordings, including videos. Uh, You all get uh, swag that is exclusive to our Patreon community. So there's a lot happening there. 
Go check it out. And by the way, thank you to some of our latest members who have joined, who have just signed up. Jason, David, Spencer, Charlene, April, Theron, Jamma. Thank you so, so much. And if you would like to join them and join us and be part of that conversation and that community, patreon.com slash mission log. Norman, I got a question for you. How do you tell the Klingon story without telling a Klingon story? You, you get you get some Middle Ages noblemen together. You get a bunch yeah. of armor. You let them talk about heroism, fighting the enemy, uh, ripping into meat, singing songs of their deeds, and drinking. <laughs> That's you know that, that was the one thing that I thought uh, starting this episode the way that we did, and and spending a lot of time on the holodeck uh, with Rothgar and uh, and his mates. It was like this has some Klingon feel to it. You know, oh, they're ready yeah. to fight. <laughs> ready ready to go you know check 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 and check yeah 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 mm-hmm. and i guess that that's actually like it's kind of a fun parallel because clearly there's so much about klingon lore that is obviously lifted out of mythic stories middle ages heroes warriors etc that it it just yeah it, it's yeah. a fun little thing for trek to do one thing that i really liked about this you know there, there was this line uh every culture has its demons they embody the darkest emotions of its people giving them physical form in heroic literature uh is a way of exploring those feelings and that, that was a very solid assessment uh, by Chakotay in explaining mythic stories to Tuvok. Although I did wonder, like, Tuvok says they don't really have demons in Vulcan myth, but I thought surely there is some creativity in uh, Vulcan Vulcan legends, Vulcan stories. Sure. I mean, look, Spock had a pet that could kill him. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so they at least understand the idea of things that are, you know, stronger to take on kind of mythic proportions. I mean, in, in kind of like in every culture, there's going to be an explanation of why good things happen to people and why bad things happen to people. And either it's going to be in folklore or in religion. In this case, mm-hmm. in Beowulf, is because of folklore. And Beowulf being the oldest English poem of its time, it really roots the history of good versus evil, honor versus uh, dishonor, sacrifice versus, you know, you have all of these higher archetypal mindsets that, you know, change the course or dictate the course of one's culture. So... Yeah. Yeah, so I, I love that um, Chakotay once again played anthropologist and archaeologist in another episode. Yeah, you know, oh, right. Like he yeah. did in, yeah, in yeah. Emanations. Yeah. Yeah. I, the interesting thing about that line of thought, though, to me, is that it's very clear, it's very obvious and understandable is that we, we use these types of myths and stories about demons, spirits, whatever, evil, as a way to cope with the worst aspects or, or the things that we find uncontrollable about ourselves or the people around us or simply making sense of a chaotic world. You know, things happen that are terrible and tragic and don't always make sense to us. They're beyond our scope of comprehension and understanding. Therefore, all cultures have this mythic way of trying to make that make sense because it's a very appealing narrative. A, that there's some other thing out there making these terrible things happen as opposed to just the chaos of 
whether it's thousands or millions of people who are acting under their own agency and maybe have terrible ideas and terrible impulses that they uh, that they act upon. Or also the, the even more appealing narrative that all we have to do is slay the monster and then the problems go away. Right. You know, we, we talked about this a little bit in DS9 and it sparked a very interesting conversation later on with our listeners and in and, and our Discord where um, I had mentioned something about uh, uh, the, you know, kind of the, the problematic idea of Cisco just looking at Goldicott and saying, all I saw was evil. It's just pure evil, you know. And that's a difficult thing to actually say that's what it is because it, it, it takes the onus away from the person or the people who are acting out on these bad impulses, acting out due to whatever it is, bad information, indoctrination, et cetera, et cetera. But when you can package something and just call it evil, say, here's the evil thing out there. All we have to do is kill it. And then we're good. Then we get to move on. But that is the appeal of a story, whether it's Beowulf or fast forward up to the modern era, like zombie stories. You know, all I have to do is stamp out the evil thing and then we're good. Then it's happily ever after. But what we really know is there isn't actually such a thing as a happily ever after. What I like about uh, using Beowulf here in the holodeck uh, as an allegorical construct, there is a time where good was good, evil was evil. There wasn't a lot of gray matter in between. And I think that, you know, I think in at least in, in the terms of this story, the good was we discovered a life form. The bad was we just incarcerated that life form. Then the good was we recognized that we incarcerated the life form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then we, you know, it's, there was something very encounter at Farpoint-ish about this episode. You know, that, there was yeah, a riddle yeah. to be solved. It, it, yeah, yeah. In, in a classic sense, for sure. Now, well, well, what's weird, and this might be jumping ahead a little bit, is that that aspect of the story is pretty minimal. Like, we, mm. we spend a lot less time on that than we do just in the meat hall and, you know, drinks and lamb and... But I wish we did. Songs of Warriors, yeah. Because what I liked about this episode, and and believe me, folks, I'm trying. Mm. What I liked about this episode is you had this very rudimentary architecture of the alien of the week being misunderstood. It's not like we haven't done that already. In Parallax, that was pretty much the Enterprise incident being referenced. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, you have Encounter at Farpoint and you have the devil in the dark. You have an alien being that has been in some way slighted and is fighting back. So, you know, and and it's interesting that in this case, you know, it's fighting back in the form of of the Grendel monster in a holodeck when it doesn't even really appear as a monster. It it really does appear as itself, as a photonic life, you know, construct. Sure, sure. Well, and what's, I guess, what maybe is part of the disconnect of this episode is that what you're describing is this very purely Star Trek thing. Like, you know, we, we encounter something we don't understand. We may have done wrong. Now we have to do right to mm-hmm. resolve this, you know. And maybe what's the, the disconnect for me here is that whether you're talking about it that way, which is Star Trek's spin on the myth, Star Trek's way of saying, oh, but wait, what if the monster is a thing to be understood, which I I think is great. We also have the mythic construct of 
the thing that is out there that is evil, we have to defeat. All right. Um, that that is the the old classic, you know, age old way of telling that story, which would be uh, with Star Trek spin on it completely lost on the character's reality within the holodeck. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah, so it, it really is just purely about our crew. And but we spend so much time then with the characters on the holodeck for whom this would just sort of like be beyond their comprehension or understanding. Like, would they really care that this is a thing from space that is to be understood that has offspring that we may have done wrong by? Like, would that just completely fly beyond their comprehension? You yeah, know, I think it's too or, bad, too, because I, I would have liked to have flipped that script and spent more time on kind of like the, the, you know, sussing out the puzzle as opposed to, um, I don't know, there, there was something about the doctor in, in this episode and kind of like the, the further study of his AI-ness that didn't work as well for me in this story as it did in previous stories. And I'm not sure what it is. Well, well let's talk about that because okay. that, that was one of my immediate notes here, which is why would the doctor be nervous? So well, like, why would that be a thing built into his personality? Or, I mean, granted, you can say it has been several weeks, months at this point, that they've been out there that he's been turned on all the time, that he's been act well, I should say he's been activated all the time. So there may be things that have kind of developed and evolved in his personality. But even if it's there, even if nervousness is something that's is it something that could be shut off? You know, is it a part? Uh, the, the doctor keeps gaining all these pieces of autonomy uh, that he could activate or deactivate himself. Um, he can clearly, you know, download. He can access whatever information he wants. So, could he realize or understand? Hey, this is something that um, that I'm walking into. That a I need to be armed with information, but I should also maybe be able to tamp down any impulses that might stop me from being able to accomplish my mission. And for that point, what about the, uh, the romantic aspect here? You know, he's caught a bit off guard by Freya, but it's also not lost on him. What's, uh, you know, what's the stake here? And you, you buy it as the audience that he's got some feelings for her. Here's the interesting thing about the doctor up to this point. There was a reference that he kind of uh, cast a little bit of shade towards Tuvok. I think it was an ex post facto saying that I know everything there is to know about mind melds because I have the entire database of mind melds ever since the beginning of the first mind meld because that's mm -hmm. that's in my library. He is the walking computer in holographic form as, as Schweitzer, right? So when anyone asks him to do something like brush up on the story or try and learn this, like... What does he have to do aside from Blink to download hundreds of thousands of volumes of information sure. in t instead of, say, um, here's another line that was I thought was weird. It's like, you know, I, I spent, what was it, 47, 74 hours, like, working on a problem? Like, you're not working on a problem. You are yeah. processing information. You're, you're crunching numbers. Yeah. Like, there's there's a weird disconnect in this episode of who the doctor is, the construct of his hologram, you know, the the emotional state and well-being of him balancing out the the level of, I guess, discomfort or um, confidence that he doesn't, you know, that he's that he's trying to overcome um, underconfidence, and then falling in love with his character Freya to the point where he like enrages himself and almost kills, you know, Unferth. Yeah, it's all well and good, but it's like if you're afraid. 
kind of like data was in first contact. Just yeah. click that switch off, right. and you're not afraid. You are a computer program in yeah. holographic form. There's nothing that you can't will yourself not to do because it's in your programming ability to do so. I think part of the difficulty here is that we've we've seen some really fascinating baby steps in mm-hmm. how our, I, I won't say entirely human because Kess isn't human, but how our naturally occurring biological crew members interact with the doctor. And we've seen these very interesting little baby steps on how he develops and how we go, oh, maybe he is more than just his programming, or maybe that programming has greater flexibility in it than we could ever imagine. So we start to do that. But then you arrive in an episode like this where it's suddenly wow, there's all these emotional layers and all these things that the doctor seemingly can turn on and off, but why does he or doesn't he turn those things on and off? Perfect example, the scene where Unferth challenges him with the sword. Mm-hmm. You know, mentioned it. Well, you said the sword would weigh no more than three pounds, which is interesting. And anyway, that is exactly the piece of information that the doctor would have, could have, should have downloaded into his database before walking in there. Oh, a sword at this time would have looked like this. It would have weighed this. He would have wielded it like this. Here's how you would work with it. And then he would be practically unbeatable in that holodeck simulation. You know? You would think. But but, uh, then if the payoff is just that the sword gets to slice through him, is it a better payoff that he doesn't know how to use a sword at first or he uses it he continues to be able to use it. He would be able to beat Unferth, but because he isn't going to harm anyone, then his next best strategy is to say, look, we can do this all day. Slice your sword right through me. You're not going to win. Here's the strange thing about that. So this is a completely a side note, and I should have put this in observations, but when mm-hmm. if, if these constructs, if these holographic constructs believe in who they are, the reality of their own situation... Mm-hmm. If you see somebody cut through another being and nothing happens to them, you don't say champion. You say demon. Yeah, right, right. Right, Because everyone becomes the demon. Right. Everyone in that mead hall would be freaking out because that's something you don't see. Now, if he bested Unferth in a martial contest by disarming him or beating him by the point of his sword, absolutely, you're a champion. You don't get harmed. You don't get cut in half. You don't bleed when steel passes through you. Uh, Maybe they should drink more of that mushroom tea. First Dixon Hill, now Beowulf. Does anyone play non-dangerous novels on the holodeck? Well, the candlelight is flickering low. We've uh, polished off the mead, and it's it's just lamb and elk bones, as far as you can see on the table. And that means we've arrived at the end of our discussion <laughs> of Heroes and Demons, the retelling of the Beowulf epic in Star Trek holodeck form. And now we get to kick it around a little more, decide if we feel like the episode holds up and whether or not the episode holds up. Are there morals, meanings, messages, anything that we learned that we're going to take home with us after discussion? So, Norman, uh, let's start off with you and let's, let's kick around a little bit whether or not we feel like the episode holds up. Well, I want to address something uh, about the episode, how I watched it, um, and how presentation is critical just to enjoy an episode. So I watched it first um, 
when I was in San Diego visiting, uh, Char, mm-hmm. uh, my, my, my friend Char, and you've heard her on the show before, she picked me up. We went to go mm-hmm. um, get something to eat. We went back to her place. We watched this episode streaming on Paramount Plus, and it was absolute visual garbage. I'm not going to pull a punch here. It was Whoa. terrible. Wow. It was so bad. Wow. It was almost unwatchable. Yeah. You know, you, you were seeing staggering in in straight seam lines on people's bodies, on their shoulders. The Voyager itself mm-hmm. going through like a sunburst looked like it was built out of Legos. Like the staggering Oof. on the interlaced quality and the compression was beyond. It, it was beyond terrible. It was. I wouldn't recommend that to anybody. But because of that, because <laughs> of that, we didn't pay attention to the story proper because it was so bad we needed to uh, entertain ourselves while watching uh-huh. it. Now, doing what yeah. we do here for Mission Log, doing our due diligence, I watched it when I got back home, put in my DVD, completely different viewing experience. So I was allowed to actually focus on the quality or lack thereof of the episode. So be be warned, people, when you're watching streaming services out there that you may or may not be getting the best possible presentation, which may or may not take you out of the viewing experience because it's also very important so that you can say, you know what, I gave it a fair shake because it was at least a proper viewing experience. But back to the episode. Um, yeah. No, but, but that, that, that's all fair to get across because, I mean, yeah, it, it does affect you're watching it and what we do here is very intentional exactly. watching is very intentional viewing and that that can absolutely wreck your experience the yeah. the episodes it's clumsy let I me mean, let's be honest you know and i'm sure it was a great idea mm-hmm. on paper you know if, if i had to like make a one-line summary it was medieval times meet star trek but that's a trip that we've seen <laughs> many 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 times i think i think the biggest issue for me at least with this episode is it doesn't commit to the the Anglo-Saxon historical gravitas of a Beowulf. When you bring in mm. something like Beowulf, you bring it in for the name because, again, it's historically very... Uh, it's, it's a very well-known historical poem uh, in history, you know, in English history, you know, per se. But you just don't really have it... Um, you don't have it sold here to the hilt, you know, pardon the pun. Yeah. Oh, I heard. nicely but done. everything... Yeah. It seems good on paper, and everything seems okay just in terms of the replication, the production. The meat hall looks good. The brassiers look good. The open flames look good. But then, you know, you have mm. a choice of, like, bringing in Freya. And again, not to disparage Marjorie Monaghan. She did the best she could with the material. Mm-hmm. But there's an actual character in Beowulf named Freyawaru, who was Hrothgar's daughter. Mm. And she's in the mm. actual poem. She was a character who was supposed to marry and bring peace between the Geats and the other warring kingdom. Why not use Mm. her instead? Why not incorporate actual history of the poem? Instead, you create kind of like this this generic shield maiden character with uh, an obvious, you know, uh, famous uh, shield maiden name. But it's... It's basically uh, just mass interpreting kind of like and, and diluting down the historical nature of this poem. So y- you might as well just like take yeah. in the what was what did Chakotay say? The the Vakshav Rakela prime and, and and use the story of the guy who ate stones, you know, for this story. If you're going to like, <laughs> right. you know, wildly interpret like what the meaning of this poem uh, is supposed to be about. So you got to commit. You got to commit to the story. You got to commit to the believability because yeah. if it's not believable your audience is going to really not even care about it as a storytelling construct. As and I, I know I didn't, I don't know about you, John. 
Yeah. Well, no, I mean, listening to you say that, it, it kind of drives home the, the big disconnects that just exist in the way this is being told. Because here you have everything happening in, you know, re- the quote-unquote real world of the Voyager, where they are um, encountering a life form, trying to decide how they navigate what they've done wrong with that life form. And it is a story that we've seen over and over in Star Trek. And that's fine. I mean, some of those are told better than others. But uh, I like to think it's one of those kind of reset reminder type stories that Star Trek gets to tell to its audience. You know, hey, look, we have to be respectful of life forms. We have to be open minded and care about the things around us. That's all well and good. That's all fine. But yes, we spend so much time on the holodeck. And we're not really giving. We're not really giving the 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 weight or the interest or the importance of the myth to that story. It's just a setting at that point, and the fact that there is a little bit of lip service paid to oh yeah, myths are important, and here's what demons represent in myths, and then we move on. But there's literally like nothing nothing learned from that. Because again, the holodeck characters don't learn. They just act out what is in right. the story or react to the human players in the story. So there's not really a lot of meat on the bone when it comes to that part of the story either. I think myths are interesting to pick apart for the importance that they had for the people who originated them and, and passed those down traditionally. But they're also interesting to pick apart from a modern perspective and go, well, well what are they really saying with that myth? And do those lessons still hold up? to scrutiny do they stand the test of time do they have their own morals meanings messages that are important and worthwhile and we didn't really just we didn't get there with beowulf it it just became a setting because well we haven't done that on the holodeck yet now i i will admit that my first viewing of this episode left me just completely cold i had no interest no buy-in to the drama just nothing Subsequent viewings were a little better, a little, little more productive. And I, and I felt like everyone was giving it their all. I mean, you, you mentioned like Marjorie, she's great, but the material just isn't really there. The, the story of Beowulf in particular is just one that didn't really hold my interest as a setting here. And then the story overall that we're telling in this episode of Voyager, because again, Star Trek has done it before, sometimes better, sometimes worse. That also didn't really hold my interest. There is just a big disconnect from everything happening. And as I mentioned in the last segment, I feel like we've moved things along at a really weird pace for the doctor. For better or for worse, but I think here mostly for worse. You know, what's interesting about him is seeing that character grow before our eyes and develop before our eyes. And then just suddenly he is this reluctant hero with all these layers because tech the tech. Not not because we we saw really the learning Plus one for you. And yeah, <laughs> well, right. Thank you. And and look, and Bob is great. There is no sure. question about it. But I I also feel like in this episode, part of the problem is it's holodeck interacting with holodeck, or a holographic character, a unique holographic character interacting with holodeck characters. And honestly, that just feels a bit cartoonish at a certain point. Um, not that we should be too, uh, you know 
carbon centric here and and only uh, put the the weight of importance on our uh, naturally occurring biological characters. But that really was the interesting part of how far we've developed the doctor. It's all the stuff where Janeway has that moment of inspiration going from, well, he's just a machine. We can unplug him. We can reboot him. And that'll be fine. He doesn't have the same rights as everybody else on board. And Kess going like, no, 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 you need to rethink that. Here's how you should rethink that. That's the interesting stuff. And I just feel like here it went off into a totally different direction. And I didn't feel like we earned those moments with the doctor. Now, look, all of that said, everybody listening to me, your mileage may vary. And that is totally fine. I was very surprised to read after I wrote my notes that a lot of people on the Voyager production crew really liked this episode and they really feel great about it. And look, good for them. (laughs) I think this early in season one of the show, though, I'm still feeling a bit ping pong between stories that have consequence and the ones that don't, or at least the ones that address Voyager's very unique situation. I will give them this, you know, one of the strongest moments at the end, it it does stand out, you know, at the end, Janeway and the doctor get to talk about the ideas in what just happened. The first contact, the unique variables in every situation. It's a strong scene because it's one of the first times that Janeway doesn't address the doctor merely based on his functional capacity or just navigating his existence. Like they're having a real conversation and it's a learning moment. Uh, so that that was cool. That that was very good. So uh, it, it it it's one of those episodes where everybody is good, but then I have to ask about the story. Why? Like, why are we telling the story? Why are we telling it now? Are there things that we're supposed to learn from it? Oh, look, there's a transition. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. So are there? Tell me. So we've referenced the doctor in Voyager as being that quote-unquote traditional Star Trek character, the outsider of humanity looking in, so that we can find the empathy of that character and understand what that person would feel like or react to certain situations in the real world. I don't think that that's lost on us with, you know, with a holographic doctor. But you have to ask yourself, like in, in so many different examples, what does it take or how long does it take to overcome feeling marginalized the way that the doctor feels? Mm. The problems of this episode notwithstanding, I really do think that if you follow kind of like a connect the dots type of scenario, you have a few examples that really paint a good picture of how the doctor hasn't overcome certain things, even if he's been given the confidence and the credibility that he deserves from various members of the crew. So at the very beginning of the episode, Kess tries to encourage him to pick a name because it gives him a little bit more agency as a Starfleet officer. But he already has been. He's been given that agency by Janeway, by being, uh, he, by mm-hmm. being, uh, have governance over his own program. Uh, so many of the uh, other other crew members also have respected him in certain rights. Kess certainly has. So why is the self doubt lingering in this case when he's given the opportunity to go on an away mission? But I think that, and I mentioned this before when you mentioned it in observations. I think that a telling line, at least in, in the way that the doctor still values himself, or how he believes others value him. When Freya says, your Mm -hmm. people must value you greatly, the doctor says, you would Mm -hmm. think so. How has he not been given enough 
confidence in the last few episodes or since he's been turned on by his other crewmen to not feel that he is, you know, that he hasn't risen above a certain level of status or a certain level of agency or responsibility as the EMH, as the doctor, to where he still thinks he's underappreciated. I I don't want to derail you and I don't want to jump to my conclusions here, but but let me ask you this, and and this is kind of a, a rhetorical thing. Maybe our audience can chime in on: Are those rights something that needs to be given to the doctor, or is this something that that he can assert and adopt on his own, or is it a combination of the two? Because yeah, he may feel. He may feel less than, he may feel disrespected by, by, by that line, which is funny, but also insightful. You know, you would think so. But is it, is it really a thing that he needs to wait for Janeway to say, like, by decree, as the captain of the Starship Voyager, we now recognize that you have rights, or we now recognize that you are a member of the crew. Well, he, he just he just kind of is by right. being there. So is it really about him, or is it just about, like, those constant interactions of people around him just going like, oh, yeah, I need to not be so dismissive of him. I guess that's kind of the big question, and I think that's why I'm having a hard time trying to understand the doctor's story here. But in the, in the moral of the mm-hmm. story, I think that... If you're given consistent support, I think that you would feel less and less and less um, anxiety-ridden or, or you would feel more valuable over time because you have been given responsibility, mm-hmm. because you have been given uh, the, the, the confidence of the people that you're working with or the people that, that find value in you. I mean, uh, one of the last examples is when Freya asks the doctor, do you know what it is to be alone among many? and unable to speak your fears. Mm-hmm. And the EMH says, or the doctor says, I think I do. And she asks, how do you survive? And he says, I'm still learning how. So it's, it's a really yeah. interesting uh, juxtaposition here of him saying that he's learning as opposed to what he can download immediately in terms of knowledge. So what is the program? Is the program, is his program still learning and evolving or all does he have to do is kind of like what Neo did, plug into an information source and like, here is confidence. Now you have it, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to here's confidence yeah. because you've earned it. And I think that's a, it's an interesting way of looking at a character, but if they don't handle it right, then you don't really believe in the doctor's struggle because all of a sudden he has to say, who's the most confident person in the history of ever? I'm just going to download that pattern into my thinking. Right. And that's it. But that's not how it works for people. People have to learn that by action and by, by appreciation and by consistent... Um, uh, the, the, the consistent evolution of that reinforcement. So I think that that's where I understand the message. I just think that be careful of the consistency of how you're going to, you know, show that message over the course of this character's evolution. That's what I got. Yeah. How about, how about you? Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I, I already mentioned one lesson and is it really a lesson or is it just kind of like a, a Star Trek trope that is valid and worthwhile and worth repeating, which is that very obvious thing of, you know, scientific discovery and treating new life with curiosity and respect and some gentleness, you know, nothing wrong at all with that and with repeating it. But it's... 
again, it's almost like a minor point in this story. It happens, but we don't really dwell on it, and it's probably not the main takeaway here. So what I do feel like is the interesting thing to explore, which you, you've already hit on very very nicely with those examples of the doctor's growth here and really asking where does that growth come from? Is it just a thing that he can go get, he can go download? Is it a certain kind of experience? Or uh, as I asked, like, is it something that is that we have to sort of wait to be given to him? And, and at what point does it really count? Or does it really register for him? So we, we have this example in this story of the doctor growing beyond his original programming you know in 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 places in ways and if the doctor here is in any way a stand-in for humans finding their way we have the same ability you know given encouragement and the right opportunity and a bit of knowledge we can grow beyond our programming so if data on tng was like pinocchio always hoping to be a real boy at the end of the day and the doctor is more like maybe the cowardly lion from the Wizard of Oz. You know, he wants to have courage, not to mention uh, a heart, like the Tin Man, maybe. And all the connection and the friendship and the sense of purpose that those things can nurture. But maybe what he doesn't know, just like from the Wizard of Oz, is that he had them all along. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com, and for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Cathexis. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, John Mann, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I brought my 20-sided dice for nothing, didn't I? Oh well, back into the bag of holding they go. transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.